Welcome to the Waves of Change podcast, conversations on human-centered change. We believe in the power of stories to build bridges and break walls, one story at a time. Today's guest, Mary Gentili, is a pioneer and innovator in values-driven leadership. Mary is creator and director of Giving Voice to Values, a pioneering and award-winning curriculum for values-driven leadership with over 1,200 pilots in educational and business settings globally. Mary is also Professor of Practice at the University of Virginia Darden School of Business. She is also Senior Advisor at Aspen Institute Business and Society Program and consultant on management education and leadership development. Mary was our guest on our World Values Day webinar on bringing values to life in organizations and systems. Mary was so inspiring, we wanted to bring her back for a longer chat. Let's dive into Mary's story. Great, so welcome to the Ways of Change, Mary. Thank you, it's great to be here. And so where are you coming in from today? I'm uh, in Newburyport, Massachusetts in the U.S., so I'm right near, right on the ocean, on the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, gorgeous, gorgeous, and so it must be quite uh, cool there for you today. Yes, we're heading into winter here. We have a little bit of snow. Awesome, awesome. So, uh, as you know, this is the Waves of Change podcast. So what does, uh, when you think of the Waves of Change, what does that mean to you? It's interesting. I was thinking about that. And I think for me, what it brings up is that, you know, when we have something we care about deeply, we often think, well, we're, we're going to we're going to act and we're going to have an impact and we're going to make change. And um, it often doesn't work that way. And one of the things I've learned since I've been doing the work I do with giving voice to values is that I need to go into any exchange and be less attached to a single and or an immediate outcome, <laughs> you know? I have to think of it as planting seeds, as trying to be helpful. Um, I'm, I'm something of an introvert and, and would get very nervous. I do a lot of public speaking and I would get very nervous. And what the one of the ways I've dealt with that is to tell myself, well, I'm going to share this. This is what I have to share. And even if the people listening don't like it or agree with it or find it useful, maybe it will trigger a better thought in them. And so when I thought about ways of change, to me, it was kind of about that. It's that you can't know that you're going to make an action and that will have this outcome or this change impact. You have to be willing to be part of a process. So I so guess that's it, a wave. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is a lovely wave. And so I think, I guess what you're saying, it's about... Um, a consciousness of service or having an attitude of a consciousness of service and being Absolutely. detached from the outcome. Absolutely. Lovely, yeah. lovely. And we'd be really interested to know about um, your any stories or things in your early parts of your life um, which have really influenced situations or people that have influenced your leadership style um, and how you lead people and organisations. Yeah, I, I guess I'd have to say my father. <laughs> um, my father was a veterinarian, um, but he was a great storyteller. And as a child, of course, 
you know how you are when you're kids. I often found it annoying. You know, you ask him a question and he launches into a story. Um, but but uh, as I've, you know, grown older and hopefully more mature, I, I actually really have come to understand and value the power of stories. And I think it's a really powerful way of leading, um, both because you're sharing examples, you're inviting people into a process, you're giving them a scaffolding in the narrative to be able to help them hang on to the ideas. Um, so I think there's a lot of ways in which that can be very useful. Wow, so stories as scaffolding, that's that's really interesting. Um, providing a framework for people to be able to uh, grasp um, the concept that you're you're telling. Can you think? Can you remember a story of your father's? Any of his? Oh, my father. Stories? My father used to do this. Uh, uh, in retrospect, I'm very. I'm, I find it very charming when we would go to bed, and you know, my sisters and I, and you know, maybe parents would come and read a book to their child or something. But my father instead would come into the bedroom and he'd say, okay, there's a file cabinet in my head and it's alphabetical. So you give me a letter and I'll tell you the story that's under that letter. You know, <laughs> so if you gave him a Z, he'd tell you a story about a zebra, you know, and he would make it up um, in the moment. <laughs> How awesome. How yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's, that's. And you know, it's interesting because Although I work in the field of leadership development and management education, um, my doctorate is actually in literature and film. And I think it's that understanding of narrative stories that's what's enabled me to create the Giving Voice to Values approach. Because really what Giving Voice to Values is about, it's about looking at the same set of facts in a particular situation that anyone else might look at and being able to form a different story about what's possible in terms of action. And so I really think that um, that, you know, early influence on up through my own, my own um, training around narrative has been hugely important. Wonderful. And what about in the early part of your career? Was there anybody um, that uh, you came into contact with or any particular situation that further shaped um, your leadership style? Yeah, um, so I guess I guess in terms of um, maybe leadership style, there was a, a, a prof I, I worked for ten years at Harvard Business School. Um, that was my first sort of um, sort of professional job after my doctorate. And um, when I was involved with developing their first values-driven leadership curriculum, and then teaching and. Um, and there was a senior faculty member there, a gentleman named Jim Cash, um, who was a real mentor to me. Um, and um, he was their first uh, tenured um, African-American professor at Harvard Business School. Um, and he, you know, so he obviously had to deal with some things. <laughs> and, um, you know, he was just one of these unfailingly positive constructive, um, very much somebody who looked for what was good and powerful and useful in other people and then gave them the opportunity to act on it. Um, um, so he was very influential to me. Another influential um, person in my career was uh, uh, another actually professor who I met when I was at Harvard, but but the story I'm gonna tell is when he was president of Babson College, a gentleman named Len Schlesinger, 
And um, he told me when he hired me um, that he looked for people who had good ideas and then he figured, I don't have to manage them. I will just give them space. <laughs> and so basically what he was teaching me was about trust. Um, you know, that if you if you respect someone, if you value what they what they are motivated by, what their goals are and what their abilities are, that you can trust them. And that was not easy for me because I'm a little bit of a control freak, <laughs> you know, mm. but it was a useful lesson. <laughs> wow. And so what did these two mentors that you had uh, teach you about mentorship per se? Um, and how did that influence you in mentoring um, others in your career? Well, that's an interesting question. Well, I guess I guess one is looking for people that you didn't need to micromanage, <laughs> you know, um, and then not doing it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I don't always succeed at that, <laughs> but it's something that I consciously try and do because I realize that it's disempowering to people to manage them too closely. Um, and it's also a waste of my time. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. So that, that, that uh, coming out was a, a key value there was around trust. Um, trust. And, 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 you know, it, it's obvious right from the very beginning, your, your life work has been around values. What do you think was it that attracted to you to that type of work? Um, well, was it by accident or was it, nothing's by accident, but tell us the story behind that, that really um, what got you interested deeply in yeah. values. Yeah, it's funny. I, th- I think there's a there's a, a story that's more personal and then there's a story that's more professional. In terms of the personal story, when I was a child, actually, I had this conscious aspiration that what I wanted to do, what I thought would be a useful thing to do in life, would be to write a book. Um, it had to be less than 100 pages, had to be short, lots of white spaces and maybe pictures because I figured people don't have a lot of time. (laughs) I don't know why I was thinking this way as a child, but it was a book that would tell people how to be happy. And (laughs) in retrospect, when I look at the work that I've done, the book that I've written, well, I've written several, but the one giving voice to values, I think in my mind, I wanted to help people find ways to be able to act on their values because I thought that actually made them happy. That, that, um, you know, doing things that you know are wrong or inappropriate because you feel like you don't have a choice is a recipe for despair and disillusionment and cynicism. Um, And so in some ways, I think in retrospect, I kind of lived out my my childhood aspiration. In terms of the professional sort of um, experience that kind of led to what I've done, it was a little different. I was... um, um, working, uh, again at Harvard business school. And, um, I had a, a good position. I, I was, uh, managing their research, their case research team. They had about 60 people I would hire and train and, and manage who wrote all the Harvard business school case studies. And I remember after doing it for a little while, um, I went to my boss and said, I, I was going to leave. And she said, why? And I said, well, you know, I want to do something that feels more meaningful. <laughs> And, and, and uh, she said, oh, you know, that, that's what's on your mind. So it, it turned out it was just around that time that they had decided to commit to creating um, uh, uh, and uh, values and ethics and leadership curriculum. 
And so it was kind of uh, this convergence of my having this desire or need or appetite and it happening to be the right time. And those mm. things came together. Tell us about what was happening in the world at that time, because nothing happens in a vacuum, right? And so there must have been some uh, things that were influencing the need for Harvard to create uh, that, that values curriculum. Well, you know, in business schools, um, this has been an ongoing challenge, right? Because every few years, there tends to be a spate of scandals that hit the business press, you know, in the in, in the 70s, there were the defense industry scandals, and uh, um, then we had the insider trading scandals in the 80s, which was around when when the story I was telling happened, um, you know, but then, you know, uh, we've had many since then. We've had other spates of scandals, you know, there's Enron and WorldCom and Parmalat Group and Galleon. And, uh, you know, more recently we've had Volkswagen and Wells Fargo and Boeing. And, you know, so there's always something going on. But around that time, we were dealing with the uh, insider trading. Yeah. Okay. Great. And so, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that Giving Voice to Values is a program that you've been the director and the creator for. Um, can you give us some examples? Tell us a little bit about that program, um, first of all, um, and, uh, you know, its birth and why and, and how it's grown, and then I'll ask you a few more questions. Sure, sure. Well, Giving Voice to Values, or GVV as I referred to it, it really grew out of my frustration because I had been working not just at Harvard, but in other, working with other companies and business schools around values-driven leadership. And I was uh, disillusioned and discouraged with the way we dealt with it. We, we tended to um, think of it as if it was entirely a cognitive challenge, that you had to find some sort of decision-making framework. You know, it's like you have this black box and you put in all the data and then the right and ethical answer would come out and then you were done. I call it the preach and pretend method. You know, you sort of preach to people about what's right and then you pretend that they know how to do it. Um, and I was very frustrated because it seemed to me that a lot of what we were doing, you know, I would be in these discussions, whether it was in a classroom or whether it was in an organization, and they would use some sort of thorny ethical dilemma case study. And, you know, people might come into the discussion with an idea of what they thought the right thing to do was. But then in the course of the conversation, um, you know, people would end up finding ways to massage their positions and rationalize, you know, why, well, maybe it's the only thing you could do, or maybe it's just the way it's done in this situation, or maybe we don't have all the information. And what I started to realize is that it was almost like a schooling for sophistry. You know, people were learning to be able to rationalize anything. And of course, that wasn't the intent, but that was the way it would start to come out. I remember interviewing a guy, a, a CEO and an entrepreneur, and he told me that um, he had recently been looking to hire someone right out of one of the leading business schools. And he brought the gentleman in for the final interview. He made it to the finalists. And uh, he'd asked this, this young man who had just completed his graduate business degree, he'd asked him, did you take an ethics class in your MBA program? And the, and the gentleman said, well, yes, it was required. And the CEO said, well, what did you learn? And the guy said, well, you learn, I learned all the models of ethical reasoning, you know, utilitarianism and deontology and virtue ethics. And then I learned that whenever you encounter 
a values conflict at work. You should decide what you want to do and then select the model of ethical reasoning that will best support what you want to do. Um, and, you know, this, this was not what the professor hoped this, this gentleman would walk away with. And the CEO who was telling me the story was kind of teasing me, right? Because I was the ethics lady. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of truth to this that, you know, we were teaching these models and there was no, uh, it was all just about how can you make a good case, you know? Um, and so I started to be frustrated with that. Um, and around the same time, I started to see more and more research that was suggesting that if you really want to have an impact on people's behavior, that um, rehearsal and pre-scripting and peer coaching, literally practicing, um, is a much more effective way to have an impact on people. So tell um, us, And so that's why I, I built the Giving Voice to Values pedagogy. So tell us a little bit about what you mean by practicing, um, because, you know, it's, it's, you talked about this preach and pretend. So you're trying to create more than a pretend. Um, so what is, what is that practicing helping the person to do? Yeah. Well, first of all, you have to have the right trigger. Um, and, you know, I mentioned that I used to manage the case writing program. And, you know, anyone in business is familiar with cases, right? And they end with a decision maker who is trying to figure out what to do in a thorny situation. And for a giving voice to value scenario, they end differently. They end with a, a protagonist, a main actor who's already decided what he or she thinks the right thing to do is. They're post-decision-making, as one dean put it. And instead, the question is, how could they get it done effectively? What would they need to say to whom, in what sequence, and what will the pushback be, the objections? We call those the reasons and rationalizations. And we've identified the ones that you hear very frequently. And they're powerful, but they're not bulletproof. So we actually give people a chance to literally um, analyze and then pre-script and an action plan, and then come and rehearse them, share them with their colleagues. And then the colleagues can critique them, but the critique is not, oh, that's that will never work. You, you might say that will never work, but if you say that, you have to then offer something that you think might work better. So it becomes a kind of peer coaching as opposed to simply poking holes in something. It's not a role play. It's not your traditional adversarial role play, because if you do that, it's like half of the people are rehearsing all the all the less ethical responses, right? What you really are doing is you're, you're constructively and collectively trying to build arguments and action plans. And so our scenarios, um, we try to have as many as possible that have examples where after you've spent this time rehearsing and practicing and prescripting, you hear what they actually did. And, and in, in as many cases as possible, we feature cases where someone was successful. Um, sometimes they were not successful, but they tried. And so then we work on, well, how could they have made that better? You know, what, what could have made that work more effectively? So it literally is scripting and action planning. Well, that, that leads me on to my next question is that uh, can you give us some examples where some of your um, your students or the, the, at the business school or in organizations where they've then actually faced the dilemma and they've been able to give you feedback about um, how that helped them and why? 
Yeah, yeah. So I'll give you an example. I did some work with Unilever in Nigeria. And um, the way the work was structured with Unilever, um, I was going to be training a group of change champions, they called them, um, who would then, they'd learn the giving voice to values methodology, and then they would, you know, um, it was train the trainer. They would then cascade and, and train the rest of the organization. And so we, we broke my visits in, to Lagos into two sections. I went once to do interviews and focus groups and to kind of understand what were the, the most common ethical and values conflicts that, that the employees were facing that were relevant both to a consumer products firm like Unilever, but also to the Nigerian context. And then I went back the second time um, after they had gone through some online giving voice to values training, I went back the second time to actually, you know, train the trainers using Nigerian Unilever examples. Um, but while I was there the first time, there was a woman who was um, a manager uh, uh, who was sort of my handler. You know, she was taking me around to all the meetings and introducing me to everybody. And after I was there for three or four days and on my last day, um, about an hour before I had to leave to go to the airport, uh, this this woman um, said, um, you know, Marilyn was her name. She said, Mary, you've got about an hour. Um, would you mind? I have something I'd like to talk to you about. Would you mind spending it with me? And I said, well, of course not. Yeah. So she took me into this office and then she proceeded to share. She said, I've been listening to you all week. <laughs> she said, and I have two situations that I'm dealing with and that I've kind of just, you know, pretended that they weren't a problem and just tried to ignore them. Um, but after listening to you all week, I'm thinking maybe I should try and do something about them. So could we talk them through? So one of them um, was a, a, a more of a human resource issue, but one of them was a kind of really interesting challenge where corporate headquarters of Unilever was trying, you know, for all good reasons to be more environmentally responsible. And they were um, requiring their, their different divisions, their different offices to not dump refuse in landfills and to find, you know, more environmentally friendly ways to deal with their waste. And, um, but in Lagos and in Nigeria, apparently <laughs> it was, there was the government required you to put your refuse into the landfill. It was a government service. And so when they were trying to hire people to pick up the trash to take it away, they wanted them to sign a piece of paper saying they wouldn't put it in the landfill. But if they didn't put it in the landfill, they'd be violating the local laws. So they put these, these contractors in a difficult position. And so Marilyn was saying to me, so I've been telling them, you know, I don't know what to tell them. Just sign it. Pretend that you're not going to do it, you know. And she said, but I don't feel good about that. And I've been listening to you. So, so we just sort of brainstormed for an hour. And when I went back a few months later to do the formal training and we're doing the formal training and Marilyn's there and then she stands up and says, well, I can tell a story. <laughs> she talked about how she had actually spoken to people at corporate headquarters and that they had begun a process to try and figure out a way to resolve this so that they could still be working toward a more sustainable practices, but also not putting people in this uh, kind of double bind with the local laws. And so for, for her, that was really empowering. And it was also empowering to the group because they all sort of thought you had to just go along because if headquarters telling you to do this, 
you know, they're not going to listen to you if you try and explain that it doesn't work in this context. And so I thought that was a really nice example. Mm. And, and I would imagine Unilever has a set of values up on their walls. Oh, God, um, yes. Yep. And, and so uh, do you think that what you're this whole thing around having conversations and their specific conversations about how to um, is an important aspect for helping people create real values-based cultures, turning them from posters on the walls to conversations in the halls. Um, what, what do you think? This, uh, how does this play a role, having these conversations? Well, yeah, and that's exactly what we're trying to accomplish, right? Um, and interesting that you would ask that now because that that same engagement, um, you know, I, I mentioned to you I was supposed to go do this train the trainer for these change champions. And a few weeks before I went back to Lagos for my second visit, they called me up and they said, well, we want to ask you to change what we've asked you to do. Um, instead of just meeting with these 35 change champions, we'd like to have the entire senior team, which was about 10 or 12 senior folks, the people who ran the, the Nigerian office, we'd like them to sit in. And, you know, from doing leadership development, right? I mean, that's, that's like your holy grail, right? To get the senior leadership to participate. But I was also kind of scared because I wasn't really sure how this would work. Um, so it was interesting because they all went through the online training and then we came together for the in-person training and they all were now familiar with the giving voice to values methodology. And then we started sharing some scenarios and they were the post decision-making scenarios, but we put all the, the change champions, the middle managers at their own tables. And we asked them to do the usual practice, figure out how you could raise this values conflict, this ethical issue in a constructive and impactful way. Um, to make change. But then we put the senior leaders at their own table, just talking to themselves. And we asked them to look at the same scenario, but instead of doing what the middle managers were doing, we asked them to think about how could someone raise this to you in a way that would make it easier for you to hear it and respond appropriately. So they weren't being cast as the villains, the bad guys or anything like that, but they were being asked to think about what would make it possible more likely that I would respond appropriately. So we were inviting them to rehearse responding and listening appropriately. When they came together to do the debrief, I didn't really have to do anything. They just sort of started doing this kind of natural social contracting. And, and what came out of that was not my plan. It, they came up with this. They decided, well, we want to create a, a giving voice to values contract or a GVV deal. And it's going to have a set of actions that we want, um, you know, middle managers to do when they want to raise an issue and a set of actions that we want senior leaders to do when an issue is raised to them. You know, so the, the senior leaders were saying, well, make an appointment. Don't grab me in the hall because it's always bad news and it's difficult. Bring some data or some evidence. Don't just come in with this feeling and present it in a problem solving way rather than an accusation way. So even if your solutions are not things that we end up doing, be in a conversation with me about how we might jointly want to change this. And then the middle managers were saying, you know, don't kill the messenger and uh, thank me for having done this. And 
I know you can't tell me everything, but keep me in the loop so that I know that you're actually, you know, taking it seriously and and exploring it yourself. So it it became this kind of um, model for them to be able to have this conversation about these sort of issues together, which I think is getting at part of what you were asking about yeah. in terms of yeah. more organizational impact. Yeah, and and brings them from just being something that's on the wall to something that's that's real and yeah. And tangible. They had a, a a meeting and they all signed the agreement and you know and then it could be something they could reference and they'd made a commitment. And, and the key is and that, they practiced, they rehearsed it. Yeah, and also from an organizational point of view, is creating the space for that type of conversation to occur. And, 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 you know, I feel that it ties back nicely to what you said at the beginning about the waves of change. And uh, you said about um, being that, that that attitude of being uh, at service and yeah. having no attachments because you said, I didn't plan this. And then they came back and had a natural conversation. Um, right. And, and, and to, to, to what degree do you find that that's happening in a lot of the things that you do, because you don't have that, um, so uh, you have that attitude of being at service. What degree do you see magic happening as a result of that? Um, I, I think it happens all the time. It's just that it doesn't necessarily happen on my timeline. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. I mean, sometimes, sometimes we'll have the experiences like the Unilever ones where it happens right then, you know, yeah. with Marilyn or with the senior leaders. That's cool, you know. But sometimes I'll, I mean, literally, you know, you must have this experience. I mean, I get emails from people saying, you know, I heard you speak three years ago in Shanghai and now I'm ready to do X, you know. And so you have to be, you know, willing to make that act of faith, I guess. Um, and, and when I say non-attached, it's that I am attached to the outcome, the outcomes that I have for GBB, which is that I want people to, to, to know and really believe that they have more choices than they think they do. And also to have them become more comfortable, more skillful, more confident, more likely to act and voice on their values. But you have to be non-attached to when it happens and exactly how it happens, you know. Yeah, okay, that's lovely. Thank you for that, that further explanation of that. I think people will find that very useful. Um, one other thing that I, I just wanted to go back to was that, um, you know, you were talking about your father um, and how he taught you about the power of stories, um, but then also in your early days um, with Harvard, um, you know, how stories provide that scaffolding um, and narratives. Tell, tell us a little bit more about, you know, why is this important for organisations to understand and, and what are some small simple things that they can implement um, with respect to listening to stories and narratives? Hmm. Well, um, you know, one of the things that I find really powerful in, in is, is actually collecting the examples, the stories of times when people have effectively voiced and acted on their values within your organization. So we have a number of exercises in the, in the pedagogy um, that help people do that. But, you know, often people just will, 
people tend to generalize from the negative experiences and to think of the positive experiences as exceptions, you know? And, and so you kind of have to fight against that a little bit. And I think one of the ways you fight against that is by actually sharing positive stories um, more frequently and more regularly um, so that, so that people actually believe that happens and believe that happens here um, I'm doing some work right now with a with a major um, accounting firm, and you know one of the things that I've asked them to do. This is something I've done with other consulting firms, is to gather stories from and especially from senior leaders, but also from others of times when people have had encountered values conflicts and. And, and it's not like a, what a good good girl or boy am I? I mean, it's not just celebrating themselves, but actually sharing the struggle <laughs> and then sharing how they worked through it because those kinds of stories end up being, you know, they're, they're examples, but they're also learning stories because people learn from the skills you use to work through that particular challenge. And it also, when they're told by senior leaders, it also gives credibility because um, people believe that you actually want to walk this talk, you know. Um, so so I, I, that's one of the things we do. I mean, GVV is all about stories. You know, we, mm. we collect stories, but we also have people. We share our, our giving voice to values post-decision-making scenarios and ask them to, you know, create solutions for them. Um, one of the core exercises of giving voice to values is something called a tale of two stories, where we ask people to reflect on a time when they personally encountered a values conflict in their work, where they were feeling implicitly or explicitly pressured to do something that conflicted with their own values. And they found a way to effectively act on their values. And then they answer a set of questions about what were the enablers, the things that made it easier? What were the disablers, the things that made it harder? How do they feel about it? But then we asked them to think about a time when they had that kind of conflict and they failed to act effectively on their values and answer those same questions. And so from that, people begin to understand what enables me, you know, and what disables me. And can I begin to reframe that and be more prepared to um, to to uh, resist the, the disablers or to transform them into enablers or to find ways around them? So, you know, we do that a lot. We also have, uh, with, with longer programs, we'll sometimes, after people have been practicing for a while, we'll ask them to go back to their negative tale of two stories and write a new ending. It's kind of based on the idea of narrative therapy, you know, where mm -hmm. we actually ask people, now for the rest of my life, I'm not going to think about myself as the kind of person who doesn't act when I encounter that kind of challenge because I have an alternate ending in my head that I have rehearsed and crafted and and you know written so so stories are everywhere in giving voice to values lovely yeah and then that last bit is what we call here at flint rock consulting uh, is bringing the future into the room say it again bringing the future into the room yes yeah. yes yeah, great. that's a great way to put it so how would you then summarize um, for an organization that's trying to create a values-based culture? What are the three points that they really need to keep in mind? Hmm. Well, I guess I would say, first of all, you want people to, to begin to understand and, and, and see and hopefully begin to believe 
that they have more choices than they think they do. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people just assume they, they can't or there's no option. Um, I think another core idea behind giving voice to values is this idea of playing to your strengths. And, and the reason I say that is that I, I mentioned to you earlier, I'm kind of an introvert. I used to think that because of that, I probably was not going to be able to act on my values in most situations. But when I started developing giving voice to values and gathering all these stories from people who had acted on their values effectively, I realized that there were, of course, people who were kind of risk takers and assertive and extroverted and didn't mind getting into a bit of a, of a you know, a scuffle with people. But there were also people I interviewed who saw themselves as introverts and as risk averse, and they also were able to do this, but they did it in a different way. They framed the challenge in a way that applied, that appealed to their own strengths, you know? So, uh, you know, I, I remember talking to one woman who worked in investment banking and she was telling me about this challenge that she stood up to. And I said, well, how did you do that? And she said, well, I've always been a kind of fearful person. And this seemed like the safer route, you know. But then when I talked to a, a, a real estate developer who told me about a time when he had stood up to some fraud in his industry, and I asked him how and why he did that, he said, well, I've always been kind of a risk taker and an extrovert. And I thought, why not take a risk in the service of something that matters to me? So, you know, they both were acting on their values, but they were acting in ways that came naturally to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so understand that you have more choices than you think you do, play to your strengths. And I guess the third thing is what we've been talking all along, which is create opportunities for people to pre-script and rehearse an action plan and peer coach with each other, you know, give them that opportunity so that, you know, the way you show you're smart and sophisticated and that you've been around the organizational block is by coming up with really creative ways to do the thing that everyone thinks it's impossible to do, you know, give them that opportunity. Wow. Thank you. That's, that's fantastic, um, Mary. And I'm sure that will give people a lot to think about um, and hope so. in terms of their own strategies. Um, can you think um, as we come towards the end, um, can you think of your own personal example where things were stacked against you um, <laughs> in any part of your career? where you had to use all of this that you've been teaching others um, and and how you applied that? Yeah, well, there have been many times when I've been in situations where I was witnessing something that I thought was not right um, and, and I've found ways to, Sometimes not, but there have been times when I've uh, found ways to be able to voice and act on my values effectively. I guess the thing I would say is that rather than tell all these little individual stories, um, for me, when I, I, I when I was at, at Harvard Business School, the last big project I did in my last two years there, I was there for 10 years, the last big project I did was I wanted them, they didn't have a course that dealt with issues around diversity and equity and inclusion at the time. And I thought that they should. And so I, I put together a proposal and, and got approval to develop this course. And one of the reasons I wanted to develop this course was because I myself felt that 
I often witnessed things that I thought were unfair or unjust or wrong, but I, I was too shy or reserved or concerned or uneasy. I didn't know how to raise them. And I thought, I want to learn how to be able to intervene effectively in those situations. So, you know, it was about a two-year project doing the research, developing the curriculum, and then teaching the course. And at the end of the course, which went very well, the students really liked it and all of that. But I remember thinking, well, I guess I failed because, I mean, it was good and all, but, but I didn't change myself. I remember thinking, I'm still the same person, you know, who is afraid to deal with these situations, doesn't know how to intervene effectively. And it was interesting because in the, the two or three months after the course ended, I had a series of situations. One was where a boss of mine was making an assumption about a colleague, uh, a, a young African-American uh, colleague, and was making an assumption about his abilities that was totally wrong, you know. Um, and another was a circumstance with a major client where the client was opening the engagement meeting by making a whole string of ethnically offensive jokes. <laughs> and and all the junior members of the team, I was a more senior member of the team, but the junior members of the team, some of them rep were representatives of these ethnic groups and they were clearly, you know, <laughs> kind of overwhelmed by what was going on, didn't know what to say. And there were a couple of other circumstances like that. And I found myself acting and voicing and in ineffective ways. I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't saying, oh, that's wrong and, you know, alienating people, but I was finding ways either with a good question or gentle humor or something to sort of make the point and get the conversation back on track. Now, I don't mean to say I always do this or that I always do it perfectly, but I realized I never would have done that in those situations if I hadn't been spending that time basically looking at people who did this and rehearsing it with my students and I was literally living the giving voice to values pedagogy by creating and teaching this course. And so for me, that was a really formative thing where I realized, you know, this works, you know, it, it changes the way you interact and it was natural, you know? So. Yeah. And we often find ourselves teaching what we need to learn the most. Yeah. Teaching is the best way to learn something, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And so what's one piece of advice, um, that you would impart um, to our listeners, um, whether it be around career or whether about being a leader, what's one piece of advice you'd like to leave them with? Yeah. Well, if they're leaders, um, I think I would suggest that in addition to thinking about, you know, how do you help your employees worship their values and all that kind of stuff, one of the things, this, this whole same approach of scripting in practice, you can use it for yourself as a leader to rehearse and script, how do I hear it when someone brings this stuff to me? Um, you know, when someone brings these kinds of issues to you, there's a tendency, well, there's never good news. It's often expensive or time consuming. So there's a tendency to not want them to be true. But even if you're really taking it seriously, you have to do your own due diligence, right? You don't just say, well, because this person told me this is going on, it's it's true and I'm just, you know, you have to do your own research. And the problem is that often 
because of that, which is a which is a genuine and 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 you know well intentioned reaction, you have to do your own due diligence, and also because you're kind of annoyed or irritated or pressured, there can be a tendency to um, respond in a way that lets the listener feel that they've been brushed off, right? That you're not taking it seriously, and so we can really benefit from the same kind of pre-scripting in rehearsal to think about how do I have a more practiced and a more, um, it's still sincere, but a more um, effective and appreciative way of expressing to someone that you appreciate what they brought and that you're going to follow up and that you're going to do your own research. I think a lot of times leaders don't think that they need to rehearse that message. And I think that's a hugely important message in terms of sending a signal to the rest of your organization that you really care about, about these issues. Thank you, Mary. I think that's, again, some really thoughtful advice um, for our listeners to reflect on. And it's been um, awesome uh, having you on the Waves the Tanks podcast today. And um, it's my pleasure. And uh, it's I could listen to you all day. And um, I look forward <laughs> I look forward again um, us having another opportunity to really um, to listen to more of your stories about the Me organizations too. that you've worked with. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen.